0: Hello and welcome to the Ukraine episode of the Battleground podcast with me, Saul David. Today, in a break from the normal news and questions format, which will return next week with Patrick, I promise, I'm talking to David Petra Karakos, an internationally acclaimed author, journalist and war correspondent, and a regular contributor and co-host of our sister podcast, Disorder. Disorder attempts to make some kind of sense out of what's happening in the world today, Gone are the days of coherent international coordination. Rather than working together to solve pressing crises, many of the most powerful actors on earth are actively making those crises worse. Disorder asks the important question, why? David, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Saul. Great to be here. Now, you've been covering Ukraine since the first days of the war in 2014, and in 2017, published your book, War in 140 Characters, how social media is reshaping conflict in the 21st century. It's been praised by a lot of people, including senior military figures, former chief of the British Army, uh, General Sir Nicholas Carter, and also Admiral James Foggo, commander of NATO forces in Europe. But can you give us some examples of how social media has transformed the conflict in Ukraine, both before and after the full-scale invasion in February 2022?
1: Uh, That's a really good question, Saul. So I think I'll start. Let's start with 2014. So I, I turn up to Ukraine. Actually, it's kind of funny because I didn't intend to cover a war. I intended to cover the aftermath of Maidan, the Maidan revolution, but I'm a bit like Jonah. Everywhere I go descends to disaster. In 2009, I went to interview the Lebanese president Hariri for one week and the government collapsed and he fled to Paris. So I turned up in, at the, in on the 1st of April, I think, 2014, and then war broke out t- two weeks later. And so I spent almost a year off and on covering Ukraine. And then in 2015, February, I was in a a hole in the ground in eastern Ukraine. It was minus 14 and I was being shelled. I said, you know, I've had enough. I'll go and see my father in Greece. And then the financial crisis broke out in Greece. And I spent six months covering that. But anyway, so I turn up to Ukraine in 2014 and I have this idea of what war is. You know, and I've seen it to a degree in the Congo. I've embedded with the UN peacekeepers. This is a group in full uniform, you know, fighting insurgent group. Everything is very clear. But in Ukraine, I I see something different. I'm going to the east. I'm going to Donetsk and Luhansk, those occupied cities. Now you can't access them as a Western journalist. And I'm seeing something completely different, which back then, Putin did not want to, you know, roll into Kiev, raise the Russian flag over the Rada and annex Ukraine to Russia. What he wanted to do was actually to stop Ukraine joining the EU or NATO. And the way he wanted to do this was by destabilizing it. So what he did is he sent in soldiers and tanks to eastern Ukraine. Okay, they stole Crimea. They always wanted Crimea, the Russians. You know, before 2014, you know, hardly any Russian could have told you what a Donbass was. They didn't want the Donbass. But he sent tanks and troops in there essentially to carve out a space into which he could pump in a load of propaganda and ideologically, culturally, however we want to call it separate Eastern Ukraine from the West of Ukraine? And it's really interesting. So, like, I would go into these, you know, cities in the east, and people would speak to me, and they would talk about Kiev is a fascist hunter. Kiev wants to destroy Russian speaking in Ukraine. Which, by the way, even if it wanted to, would be impossible. Repeating verbatim these Russian talking points, it was like speaking to people in a cult at points. And I saw something really interesting, which was essentially two wars almost, to put it simplistically. One being fought out on the gu- on the ground with tanks and guns and bullets, and the other being fought out online with tweets and posts and shares. And there what I saw was a very sophisticated, chaotic, often blunt, often ineffective, but ultimately quite sophisticated, wide-scale Russian propagandist operation. And social media was critical to that. And it was really interesting because back then, that was kind of, Russia was the only game in town. You know, RT was sort of airing every day. It was full-on propagandist effect that was picked up by its various trolls and bots and all these sorts of things uh, that amplified it online. And, you know, there is this belief sometimes that we have that, you know, Russians are all chess playing grandmasters thinking 30 moves ahead. A lot of it was very crude. But, you know, you throw, you know, everything at the wall. If 10% stuck it, you know, it's a win. So that was 2014. That's when I thought, hold on, you know, this is kind of something new. Now, I want to be careful here because propaganda is as old as war itself. As you know, you're a military historian. But traditionally, what you would see, I think, is, you know, propaganda supporting military operations on the ground. What I saw in 2014 was military operations on the ground there to support wider propaganda operations, a lot of them in cyberspace. So that's what struck me about the social media in 2014. If we fast forward now to the all-out invasion, starting on the 24th of February last year, what I think you see is something very different. Now, when it all happened, I was watching the Russian propagandist channels. I was watching RT. I was looking at their spear carriers online. And it was really interesting. You didn't really see very much. RT, it seemed, weren't even attempting to make the case. You'd see images of some soldiers marching up and down, but there was nothing like 2014. No full-on ideological argument about why this was right which led many people actually to say, oh, Russia's just lost the information. Well, actually it hadn't. What it was doing was fighting in different parts of the world, in Africa and so on and so forth. But that's another story. But actually what you then saw in 2022 was the rise, I would say, of Ukrainian comms. You know, essentially back then, especially concentrated around the, the figure of President Zelensky. What I saw with Zelensky in those, especially those weeks following the invasion, was a recalibration of war leadership. It was really interesting. Now, Again, Saul, you know this more than me, but in the West, who is the war leader? I'd say in the imagination, I'd say it's probably Churchill. You can say FDR, but I'd say it's Churchill. And, you know, Churchill is this man, he, he wears a suit. He stands up in the house or elsewhere. He makes these great speeches full of rhetorical ornament and so on and so forth. Zelensky did something completely different, and it was really interesting. One of the most famous early, quote unquote, speeches he does is he's in the street and he's holding his phone, and he's got three other politicians by him. And this video is 44 seconds. And he keeps saying the word, tut, which means here in Ukraine. He says essentially, I, President Zelensky, here. Joe Bloggs, foreign minister, here, here, here. It is 44 seconds. He's dressed in those sort of khaki fatigue he has. He's in the street, and it's completely demotic and informal. In that video, sort of, he has two things. He is the president of Ukraine and the literal man in the street. And it is informal, demotic, quick designed to go viral on social media. And in that sense, we see a recalibration of war leadership. And I think the difference is in 2014, you saw social media being used to really amplify Russian propaganda. 2022 is when the Ukrainians really started to understand it, to use it to fight back. And you saw this across the board. A female politician whose name escapes me, forgive me for that. You know, she has a a photograph herself and she's in her living room. She hasn't got any shoes on and she's holding a gun. And, you know, you can see in the background, there's accoutrements of her kid. There's some kiddies toys and stuff. And again, it's the same principle. I'm a civilian. I'm female, but I'm staying and I will fight if I have to, because we are civilian people being attacked by this imperial power. So you really saw, I think, a back and forth between 2014 and 2022. But in both instances, we understood that social media was key to how the informational war was played out.
0: Yeah, fascinating. And uh, I like your reference to Churchill. I'm, I'm writing about him in the moment. And I think it, it's interesting. Of course, he did wear his suit and his bow tie when he was in the House of Commons. But most of the time when people met him and he was, he was seen on the ground in the UK, actually, he was wearing his romper suit or his siren yeah. suit, as it was called. Yeah, so was actually, he did look relatively democratic, I suppose, if that's the expression. But yeah, all fascinating stuff, Dave. Thank you. Now, you're in London now, but you've literally just come back from Ukraine and you visited the front line in in the east, in the Donbass. Can you tell us a little bit about what you saw and where you went? Sure. So I've been back
1: and forth since the all-out invasion last year. And in that time, I've been to the front lines in the south, Mykolaiv, Kherson, the east, notably Bakhmut. I was there for the Battle of Bakhmut, which was quite extraordinary. And then up in the north and northeast. So that's Kharkiv, the Kharkiv Oblast, and Kremlin around there. So my most recent uh, trip, actually, I was I was in the, in the south in Odessa, uh, and I was actually just sort of having meetings with various people, my forthcoming book and so on. Look, I think things are very tough at the moment. The counteroffensive, the summer counter-offensive that the West gave so much weapons for did not work out as many had hoped, which has led some in certain Western capitals to become very gloomy, which I believe is an error. What I've seen over the last two years almost is very interesting. Again, in 2014, I looked around and, and saw what I believe to be certain trends that might come to effect or dominate 21st century conflict. I've seen yet another evolution again since February 2022. The situation is tough. It's now very, very cold. I mean, I came out yesterday walking through the Polish border. You obviously cannot fly in and out of Ukraine now, so you either go out of Poland or you go out of Moldova, depending on where you are in Ukraine. You know, the winter is biting this time and the Russians are exploiting this. I pulled into Kiev a few days ago, just as there was the biggest drone attack that the city has ever experienced from Russia. This was wave and wave and wave of Iranian Shahid drones, which is another interesting thing, Saul, because I've now been attacked by, not me personally, but my positions or the area in which I'm in, Uh, I've been attacked by Iranian drones in southern Ukraine, eastern Ukraine, Kiev, and indeed Israel now. So I think another thing we're seeing here, interestingly, is this alliance of rogue states, right? This alliance of of states that have very little in common. You often hear this phrase, actually, the axis of resistance to talk about Iran, China, Russia, whatever. I actually think that's a misnomer. They're not an axis of anything. I mean, what does you know North Korea have in common with Russia or, or Iran have in common with China? Very little. But there is one thing that draws them all together, and that is this desire to punch holes in what they believe to be a Western-led status quo. These are disordering powers, I think, as I would say on on Goalhanger's other podcasts, the disorder podcasts, you know, bound together by nothing more than perceiving a weakness in the West that they want to exploit wherever possible, which is why I talk about and indeed have it written about, this Western front that extends all the way from Kiev to Gaza, takes in a few other places as well. And I think what we're seeing in Ukraine now, Saul, and I think you've made this point as well, what is being fought out there on the battlefields of Ukraine is about more than just Ukraine. I do believe we're looking at a broader fight for the West here. And I have to say, you know, if Ukraine had fallen within three days, as Putin's lick told him it would, he would be in Georgia by now. He would be in Moldova by now, because why wouldn't he? Which is why it is imperative now that we hold the line and we continue to support Ukraine. I've seen, you know, incredible instances of heroism over the last two years, you know, and the Ukrainians understand that this fight is existential. That's an oft overused word in geopolitics, but it is because if they don't fight, then Ukraine, as they understand it, is gone.
0: Are you seeing any different trends in the way the uh, fight is going on? And I'm talking more physical, of course, than the social media aspect that you were talking about before. I mean, I literally just before I came on the on this conversation with you, I got a message from a, a contact of ours in the podcast, Lieutenant Colonel Hazan, who he runs the unmanned drone capability for the Territorial Defence Force, there, which is an element, of course, of the Ukrainian Army. And um, he was just sent me a video of him on the front line and saying that literally in the last couple of days, they managed to destroy four separate electronic warfare systems. You know, this is the sort of news we're not really getting, the sort of you know granular news we're not really getting. But, you know, we all know, I mean, we've seen from the beginning that drone warfare is terribly important. Are there other aspects of warfare that you've seen that are, in particular, the Ukrainians have developed and are utilizing quite well? Look, I would actually like to expand upon this drone point, because I think the drone point is really
1: interesting, and it feeds into to so many wider issues that I think speak to your question. This now, what is happening now, or the state of the war we're at in Ukraine now is essentially an artillery war with drones. So what do I mean by that? When the all-out invasion starts in 2022, it's about tanks. We've all seen, and I saw them up close and personal, those tanks rolling towards Kiev, rolling towards the Ukrainian cities. So what was happening is that the Western supplied javelins, N-laws, Stingers, all these anti-tank, you know, the n laws and javelins you hold on your shoulder and you fire. That was what the war was about. As things have gone on, it's a mass artillery war now in the east and south. You know, the ammunition that is being gone through has not been seen since since World War Two. But the drones is a really interesting point. And let's talk about that. The drones are needed by the Ukrainians. First of all, let's understand what they're needed for. The Russians are using a lot of Shahi drones, which actually seek to destroy themselves. Okay, the Ukrainians have that a bit, but they're fundamentally sending drones up to target for the artillery. Ammunition is so precious to them that they cannot afford to waste it. So they have to strike accurately as they can. But drones is really interesting. So because first of all, when we talk about the future of war, You know, I attend a lot of conferences and lectures about this. There's a lot of chat about AI, robot soldiers, this and that. But what I see on the ground is in many ways what I call the weaponization of the quotidian, the weaponization of the everyday. When I was in Bachma, we were in the bunker and I was with the drone unit. And this guy, he showed me a drone. He said, look, this is a Mavic drone. It costs $3,000. You can buy it online. You can buy it. So I can buy it. Anybody can buy a Mavic drone online. $3,000. What they would then do is 3D print a projectile, $30. Now, a projectile, you know how, I don't know if you've ever read Tintin, you know those cartoon rockets that have three fins? You know, it looked like that, like a little Tintin rocket. And inside it, you put a explosive. You attach it to the drone. And if you get it right, that $3,000 drone with a $30 projectile can take out a $6 million T92 tank. This is what we're seeing. And this is why the use of drones has so many other Effects. We're talking about the ability to wage war with equipment that has almost no barriers to entry in terms of cost and access. The second thing that I find really interesting, Saul, when I first started going to the front, especially in a conscript army, you get a variety of people. You know, different ages and so on and so forth. But generally, right on the front, you used to see these kind of tough, grizzled guys—guys that had actually—and this is, you know, ten years ago now, who had experience fighting under the USSR, because the Ukraine obviously used to be, or Ukraine used to be a part of the USSR. Now you go to the front, soul and you're seeing these weedy little guys with glasses who are there because they're IT engineers, and they know how to fly drones. So the nature of what a soldier is, is changing in certain regards. If war, increasingly in situations like this, and situations like this are a mass industrial war on the European continent. If the skills needed for that are drone piloting, a knowledge of IT then you don't need to be a tough guy you don't even need to be a guy and what i started seeing very you know recently and still rarely is women on the front because if you are a top IT person it doesn't really matter if you're male or female so all these sorts of things become very interesting because the idea of mass enlistment becomes greater who is a soldier what does a soldier do yes you still need people to kick doors in but when war changes like that the idea of what a soldier is changes and everything around it look i was in kelaminar and I was talking to an officer and he said, look, and he picked up a book. and He said, this is an officer training manual. It's six years old. He said, it's ridiculous. This needs to be like a computer program. It needs to be updated every six months because we're learning every day. So all of these things are the fallout you're seeing in Ukraine. So many trends that I think are going to come to affect the nature of conflict and the surrounding politics.
0: OK, that's enough for part one. Do join us after the break when we'll be hearing more from David Petrakharikos. On the subject of the kit that can make a difference on the battlefield, and you pointed out that the drone and the and the sort of artillery system is king at the moment. We just had the first reports this week, uh, David, as I'm sure you know, that Abrams have been seen on the battlefield. And this has made at least a few people in the West get quite excited. I mean, we reported on them, of course, at the beginning of the year. The fact that these main battle tanks, leopards, challengers, and Abrams might make a little bit of a difference. Now the Abrams have finally appeared. I mean, almost a year later, absolutely ludicrous in one sense. But What you seem to be saying is that actually Abrams or any other tank is not going to make a huge amount of difference given the way that the balance of warfare and the effectiveness of systems has changed. Look, I still think the tanks
1: are are pretty vital apart from anything else. You know, they're like mobile command centers and, you know, especially the modern ones. The Abrams was a particular case in that they delivered them too late And also, they didn't have all of the protective kit, my understanding, that they have in other theatres. The Ukrainians still need tanks. But let's use your question to broaden out slightly. What's the situation now with the war? Now, Ukrainian messaging, I think, as I discussed earlier with you, has been really top notch. You know, they've messaged really well. The point about Zelensky, apart from the fact that Zelensky saw... You know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, Zelensky was a comedian playing the piano with his penis. Now he's a modern-day Churchill. So I say to any listeners, you can do anything. Like if you can go from playing the piano with your penis to becoming I mean, one of the 21st century's great war leaders, anything's possible. But the fact that he was that, you know, comedian, that actor, meant that he could really connect with people. He knew how to use cons. And you know, I remember speaking to diplomats and they said, "Well, look, if The same tragedy was happening in Ukraine, but there was a kind of older, more lugubrious man who stood up every day and said, "'Last night, Russia struck Kiev, five children killed.'" It wouldn't have had the same effect, you know? It comes... Informational war doesn't affect war directly, but it does affect policy, and policy gets you javelins and stingers and end laws and all these other things that chew the Russian army on the ground. But there has been a problem with the counteroffensive. That's where the messaging, I think, not completely Ukraine's fault, Got a bit confused. And I think Ukraine has suffered. There seemed to be this belief that the counteroffensive, Ukraine were going to be given these weapons, then en masse, 50,000 Ukrainians would stand up and break through the Russian lines. So it's never going to happen. The situation of the war now is this we have this so called line of contact between Russia and Ukraine that extends from the northeast all the way down to the south. I remember being on the front saying, you know, getting there in the summer saying, so what's the story? Like, you know, is there going to be a breakthrough? And the guy said, look, You can understand there are three lines of Russian soldiers facing us. So if you want to take out the first line, you've got to take out the two lines behind them. And then there are, I mean, we're talking hundreds of thousands of mines all the way up and down. So the situation is this. How effective is a tank going to be against them? The answer is not very. This is what the Ukrainians are facing. This is what I think there was a lack of understanding about. Now, you can do things with, you know, lines at lines of mines. We have the English, the British, we have the Python, things that you can throw in and they explode. But, you know, Russia's have butterfly mines that can jump over you and then you, you trap the Ukrainians in them. This comes down to another, I think, sort of perennial point that we're facing here of warfare that also has become particularly acute. So when I was on the front again the last time, the soldiers were moaning about the weaponry like all this weaponry coming in, there's two issues. First of all, it's late. And this is the broader political problem. This is what Zelensky moans about. And there is this belief in Ukraine that they're being given enough to hold the Russians back, but not enough to push forward. And then on the front lines, you have, you know, and I think this is perennial with soldiers anyway, going, people in Kiev don't understand. We're here on the front. We need the weapons. They're giving to inexperienced people and so on and so forth. So right now... You know, Zelizhny, the, the general of the Ukrainian army, sort of did that interview they got in trouble for. He said, you know, there is a stalemate on the front. And I think that he's right. And I think that it's a stalemate that in certain regards could have been avoided had weapons come in earlier. But also, you're facing an enemy that actually, and here's another irony, we talk about robot soldiers and AI and yet it being thirty, you know, $3,000 drones and $30 projectiles that make a difference. But for all of this, the Russians have just resorted to almost Soviet tactics. Perhaps even further back, Saul, you're the expert. Dug a load of trenches, mind everything. And against that, there is a limit to what Abrams tanks can do when it's no longer about fighting in fields or protecting cities.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that the the Russians in this conflict and, and through history have, at least the commanders, have been very happy about losing a lot of soldiers to achieve relatively limited gains. When you've got a a sort of war of liberation like they did in the Second World War, people can go along with that to a greater extent. But it struck both Patrick and I, you know, absolutely mystifying that there hasn't been a little bit more pushback from the ordinary Russian soldier, given the given the losses that they are incurring, particularly in Bagmut, as you witnessed with your own eyes, and and also more recently at Avdivka, where the casualty figures that we've seen this month are even greater than at any point that they were in that earlier terrible battle, which we compared to Stalingrad, and uh, also a subject I'm writing about at the moment. So it is quite weird the way I've got my podcast head on, but I'm also, you know, my day job writing as a historian. But of course, the links are there between the two. But getting back to the Zaluzli message for a second, I mean, do you see any sign that there is a little bit of a fraying around the edges of the relationship, which up to this point has been pretty good between the politicians and the senior commanders, not least because there's been very little turnover in terms of personnel in those senior command positions? Um, I think there is a wider
1: issue here, a political issue, which is that Zaluzmi is incredibly popular in Ukraine. And there might be some within the Ukrainian political establishment that fear that, feel threatened by that. When I go to Ukraine, what strikes me is still, amidst everything, that the sense of unity, the sense that, you know, this need, they need to keep fighting. And again, it's because this is existential. I don't, you know, how many times do we hear in geopolitics, oh, it's an existential this and that. In Ukraine's case, it is. Putin has made very clear what his beliefs are. He believes that Ukraine is a category error. It does not exist. Ukrainians are merely confused Russians. And that, you know, to put things right, Ukraine must be absorbed into Russia. Now, if you're a Ukrainian, especially after the, you know, Busha, when the Russians were liberated from, you know, were pushed out of Busha and you saw the mass graves, the tales of torture, everybody knows what's coming if they don't fight. That said, the issues on the ground are that when I speak to soldiers there who have joined up already fighting 2022, these were guys who volunteered. These were motivated guys. These were very, very high caliber people. Many of them are dead. Now, a lot of people are being sent to the front of conscripts. And even if they're really eager and so on and so forth, they need to be trained. I remember, and I mean, I wrote about this, a commander telling me, look, when when I'm at base, when I lost contact with the guys on the ground, I could think, fine, the sergeant will take care of it and it'll be fine. Now, because we've got all these new raw conscripts in, perhaps are not always as motivated. I have to make sure that I can try and stay in contact. Otherwise, God knows what they're going to do. So they're facing these problems. Like they're tired. These people have been fighting for a long time. But I still think that there is that, that unity there because there is no choice. I'd like to follow up on something you mentioned. We talk about, or I talk about the gift of autocracy, right? The gift of dictatorships. And you talked about it. the Russians can lose loads and loads of men and it doesn't really matter. When I was in Bakhmut, the commander said, we are facing, and this is the word, they, the phrase they use, meat waves. They call them meat waves. I don't know if you've heard this. The Russians just send wave after wave after wave. And the Ukrainians at the time were like, it's okay, we just reload the automatic thing and we keep firing. And when you go there as a journalist, you have to sort of at least be sceptical about things. And I was like, really? They just charge towards you? And the command said, yeah, we think they're on drugs. So I was like, well, okay, how do you know? I mean, this is not beyond the realms of possibility. ISIS, Daesh, towards the end, they're all on Captain and meth. And he said, come with me. And he took me into, into the bunker They have a drone, drone unit where you see all the screens of, of, of the drone footage he said, look at this. And he said, I don't care how experienced a soldier you are. If a shell explodes behind you, you're going to jump. He said, these guys are so off their face, they don't react. And I see the footage. And you see in this black and white thing, you see the Russian camp, and you see like a huge explosion and lots of soldiers jumping around. The side, and these two just, just sit there. They don't react because they're so off their head. And you see another one where a shell explodes near them. They just brush the stuff off and continue, continue sitting. I mean, this is not normal behavior. And in the end, mass becomes a quality of itself, doesn't it? You can keep sending them and sending them and sending them. You talk about Stalingrad, yeah, being a war of defense. And I'm surprised as well, but I've seen it on the front. I've seen the footage and they are just coming wave after wave after wave. And back in the day, it was the NKVD that if you turned around, you know, if you tried to retreat, they'd shoot you. Now they use the Chechens, the Kadyrovites, to do the same thing. And this is a big problem for Ukraine because Ukraine is a democracy. And deaths, as well as being a tragedy, do incur a political cost there is no political cost uh, for vladimir putin so far so it's it's very very finely poised it's very very tough i mean it is cold there so like last winter was a lot milder and we haven't even got into the dead of winter yet but i was there had to walk through the you know walk through the polish borders, come out it is freezing and it's not even december yet
0: Yeah, I could see from the video that I mentioned earlier, um, from Colonel Hazan uh, driving up this road somewhere in eastern Ukraine and already snows on the ground. One of the few areas of optimism, or at least one of the few areas where there seems to have been some movement in the front line recently has been on the east bank of the Dnipro, where these bridgeheads have been lodged. And there is some optimism, although anyone who understands logistics realizes how difficult it's it is to break out of a bridgehead unless you've got a secure crossing so that it can be properly supplied. What's the feeling in Ukraine as to the possibility that these bridgeheads, which in theory are at a slightly less heavily defended part of the front, they might hold for Ukraine in the in the coming weeks and months? Look, there is a belief that they can and you know, that that might be a
1: point from which they can push on. So look, there is optimism about that. The Ukrainians are very pleased about that. They believe not only is it good in and of itself, but also shows that they can push on now if they're only given the tools. Again, going back to Mr. Churchill, give us the tools and we will finish the job. So I think that that was good. It came at, an, at the right time as well, amidst a period of a lot of bad news. Let's see, you know, we're waiting, or they're waiting rather for the F-16s. But I think now there's gonna have to be a question of, you know, what happens politically. I will tell you one thing, and again, this is something, you know, I'm sure everybody in Ukraine right now who's engaged, is looking to washington everybody's worried about those 2024 elections terrified in fact there is a feeling that if the wrong candidate is elected then it could be the end of, of military assistance to ukraine from america and that is very very bad for everybody
0: in the interim of course uh there was a very concerning uh, bit of news that came out in the built uh, newspaper in germany that both the Germans and the US government are secretly planning, this was the report, planning to put pressure on Zelensky to negotiate a peace with Russia by deliberately scaling back arms deliveries. I mean, more specifically, the report quotes. German government sources saying that both countries will supply Ukraine with sufficient weapons and armor to hold the current front line, but not enough to retake occupied territory. You know, this is sort of confirming, if it's accurate, what you were suggesting some people believe anyway, which is that there's been this, you know, almost this conspiracy to keep the war going, but not to give the the Ukrainians enough to finish the job. Is this report being taken seriously? And have you heard anything more uh, about it? So I've actually heard a fair bit of doubt being cast on this report. And certainly, as you know,
1: I don't think there's any conspiracy to to, to keep Ukraine only doing so much. I think in the beginning, definitely there was a, a drive and a desperate desire to, to get the Russians out. I, I remember joking that Putin shouldn't be sanctioned, he should be given the Nobel Prize for finally uniting the EU. If you remember those early months, I've never seen the EU so united. I mean, Germany, Germany was giving military assistance. You make the Germans give military assistance to someone my God, especially against Russia. So I, don't, I think the report in of itself might be overcooked, overwrought. I don't think there's a secret plan to do that. The Americans especially, you know, they're sick and tired of Putin, as I think many of us are. I think they really, really wanted to get him out. I think that rather than this report in of itself being completely true, it might be symptomatic of broader feeling like, okay, here we are, we can't let the Russians push on anymore, but how realistic is it to get them out of places? And that's just my own speculation. But the report in and of itself, I've heard a lot of people distance themselves from. Look, all. So I go back to my earlier point, and it's this. From the very beginning, the Russians thought from the very beginning that the West is weak, the West is divided, and in the end, the West will abandon the Ukrainians like they did the Afghans and they did the Iraqis. All we have to do is wait. And, you know, it is imperative that we don't prove them right about that because it will just be worse further down the line you will embolden Russia further and further and further. I don't think anyone is prepared, and the politicians I speak to, the diplomats I speak to, is prepared to abandon Ukraine. But more and more people are talking about, well, what happens next politically? Where are we going to go with this? Now, I've said from the beginning, unless the Ukrainians can push the Russians out of all the territory, where do we go? You know, something people ask me a lot of, and I'm sure they ask you the same, is, can Ukraine win? Can Russia win? And it, it's all about, well, what do you call winning and losing? Like, how do you define it? Can the Ukrainians push Russia out of all the territory it's occupied, especially those areas it's occupied for almost 10 years? If you're nine years old, so in 2014, living in Donetsk, you're going to be 19 next year. You have not, whatever you've grown up in, it's not Ukraine. You've not grown up in Ukraine. You know, the first thing the Russians do when they go into any place they occupy is they put a total comm siege. They cut off all Ukrainian media. They pump in Russian media. That's not Ukraine you've grown up in. So can Ukraine anyway liberate all those territories that were taken? Probably not. Can Russia push on to, to Kiev now, raise the Russian flag over the Rada, annex Ukraine to Russia? No. So where are we then? We're in the stage now where the Ukrainians are trying to push on as much as they can. The Russians are trying to hold their line as much as they can. I think more or less we will arrive, barring with a caveat that in an age where Donald Trump was president and Jeremy Corbyn could have been prime minister, anything is possible, where the Ukrainians can no longer push the Russians out, the Russians can no longer push back in. So then what do we do? Now, I remember speaking to a couple of politicians who, you know, whose name I will not mention, but I was saying to them, well, what do we do then? They said, well, you know, we can give Ukraine security guarantees. I'm like, come on, after the, you know Budapest, after all the promises we made them, what are they worth? And they said, okay, well, look, you know, maybe we can put a Estonian brigade into Ukraine. It's not a British regiment. It's not an American regiment. It's not a French regiment, but it is a NATO brigade. they are people are thinking about what can we do. And the more I think about it, I think realistically, if we're talking, and this is only my own thoughts, North and South Korea are still at war, but they're not. You know, you have this DMZ between North and South Korea. When I stand on their Southern and Eastern fronts, And I look and I was at the zero contact line, which is 100 metres from the Russian positions. And I see, I don't actually see them, but I know that there is these hundreds of thousands of mines all across this. So DMZ there, de facto anyway. And I wonder if we are getting to a stage where, you know, the Russians will sit on the territory they've occupied, especially in the east. Maybe the Ukrainians could break through in the south, but this is where we are. You don't look, Zelensky cannot talk about negotiating for territory. I mean, imagine if this was Britain, saw so the British Prime Minister would like well, we'll give him Manchester and Leeds. I mean, you can't say it. I mean, it's politically impermissible. But, you know, I think you can talk about one day a ceasefire and, you know, you hold and see what happens. And then I know that a lot of people are thinking, well, OK, Putin can't live forever. Once he goes, then what? But for the moment... You know, the Ukrainians are still fighting as hard as they can. Let's see what happens in the winter. Let's keep giving them that equipment because the more that they can push on, the more they can fight, the more they can defeat the Russians wherever they can, the stronger position they are in. And it is a stronger position for all of us. Believe me.
0: Yeah, it's interesting thought. I mean, potentially a frozen, you know, effectively a frozen conflict with a DMZ. I mean, no no actual end to the war. I suppose the only long-term guarantee for Ukraine security, you know, not obviously not just in the medium term but in the long term would be membership of NATO and membership of the EU. Is that possible under the sort of scenario you're you're suggesting, David? Look, I actually think that is perhaps slightly morally
1: questionable when when people or when NATO leads leads Ukraine to believe that it might join because I don't think NATO will ever let Ukraine in. I actually don't think it needs to let Ukraine in so actually. It's working as as a partner with it very very clearly anyway. But this brings me to another point actually that I think is interesting. When I look at the situation now, when I look at Ukraine What I see actually is, in many ways, this kind of new Europe emerging, in which states like Ukraine are garrison states, you know, to protect us from the threat from the east. Look, the Romans knew that if you want to protect your borders, don't do it yourself, just pay the locals to do it. And I think there's this kind of thing that we're seeing now. I mean, there is a lot of NATO weaponry flowing into Ukraine. You know, the the Baltic states, which, of course, are NATO members, you see this line of garrison states and the local military hegemon there is Poland, which, you know, the polls, my God, that their thoughts on the Russians are almost more hostile than the Ukrainians. So I don't think that like it's impermissible for Russia for Ukraine to join NATO. And I think actually in 2008, you see the dangers this, of this kind of rhetoric sort. 2008, we led Ukraine and Georgia to believe they were going to let into NATO. We didn't. And Putin was in South Ossetia in Georgia, however many months later. I don't think that Ukraine will ever join NATO, but I think what we're seeing instead is another de facto reality on the ground that I've just outlined. The EU, it, it might do. It might become one of the, you know those special categories of candidates, but they're not even letting the Balkans into the EU at the moment. So well, I'm half Greek, so I know that the Albanians and so on have been promised this for years. It's not happening. I can't see either of them happening. I can't see NATO happening ever. I can't see EU membership happening, but I think that Ukraine is already now integrated in a broader strategy of Western defence and Western economic planning. So I think we have a reality on the ground anyway.
0: Great stuff, David. Thanks so much for talking to us. No, thank you so
1: much. I'm a big fan of the pod and thank you for inviting me on.
0: Well, that was absolutely fascinating, wasn't it? David, ranging all the way from 2014 to the front lines literally in the last few days, making the important points. We've heard them before, of course, in to some extent, about artillery being king on the battlefield. And, of course, as I mentioned uh, in my questions to David, I have just heard from Colonel Hazan today, who tells me that his unit has destroyed no fewer than four electronic warfare bits of kit by the Russians in the last month, each of them worth $200 million. So congratulations to Colonel Hazan's unit, and it shows you that, you know, great work is still being done by drones on the battlefield. As for where we're going next, well, uh, you know, ever the realist, David points out that there's probably not a huge amount of opportunity for Ukraine to recover all its territory and that we might at some point have some kind of frozen conflict. It's interesting he talked about uh, North and South Korea because that's the first time I've heard that as a possible scenario and it's not out of the question. Some kind of DMZ, demilitarized zone and a conflict that's in effect frozen in time. There is no peace treaty, but of course you do get a comparatively stable division between those two bits of territory. It's not, of course, I suspect, what the average Ukrainian wants to hear, and it's certainly not, as David points out, not something that President Zelensky could ever advocate. But it may be a de facto situation in the coming months, at some point in 2024, if Ukraine is not able to make the sort of territorial gains That it hoped it could. There is some hope, of course, that the crossing of the Dnipro River will open up the possibility for more gains. But, you know, in reality, the chances of that leading to the recovery of all the territory, as David points out, is not terribly likely. Do join us again next Wednesday when Patrick will be back and we'll be reflecting on the latest news from Gaza and answering listeners' questions. Goodbye.